Good morning, Faith Fellowship. How's everyone today? Did you see the forecast for the next week? Yeah. Got a question for you. You ready? Everybody ready? If you knew you had one month to live, what would you do? You say, by the looks of you, Pastor David, that's probably all you got. (laughs) Would you travel to some exotic place? Would you go on a wild spending spree? Would you cancel your health club membership? Maybe you'd want to punch your annoying neighbor in the nose. I read about a survey that had this same question. If you had one month to live, what would you do? Any guess what got the largest response? By a margin of four to one, the number one answer wasn't travel, wasn't a spending spree, wasn't punching your neighbor in the nose. The vast majority of people who knew they had a very limited amount of time before they died would want to spend that time with people they love. I want us to consider this morning what would happen if we deepened and improved our relationships no matter how much time we have left to live. Over 3,000 years ago, Moses wrote this. Teach us to realize, what's the phrase? How short our lives are. Then our hearts will become wise. Now that should be a prayer for us, just as it was for Moses. Something along the line of, God, teach us to know how short our lives are in light of eternity. And then we can have the wisdom to pursue what matters most while we're still alive. I want us to look at a story that will help us if we're going to deepen and improve our relationships. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. The he here is Jesus. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the self-appointed spiritual police of their day. Their job was to enforce the religious law, but in this situation, it really wasn't about enforcing the law. They were trying to trap and discredit Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. Now, I find it interesting, and you may too if you've read the passage that only the woman is brought before Jesus. Why not the man? Where is he? 
why didn't he get caught in adultery? Well, what we're going to see is it really doesn't matter because it wasn't about the man or the woman caught in adultery. To the religious police, it was all about catching and trapping Jesus. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a what? As a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The religious leaders were trying to force Jesus into one of two answers. Hoping that he would be discredited no matter which answer he gave. If he answered, no, no, don't stone her, he'd be going against the Mosaic law and more specifically the seventh commandment. Read it with me. You shall not commit adultery. Anybody hearing Jesus say, no, no, don't stone her, would think, hey, this guy can't be from God because he's teaching against Moses and the law that we revere. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus said, yeah, go ahead, stone her, he would be going against the Roman law because Jews couldn't carry out an execution in Roman territory. And they were a Roman province at that time. And that's what stoning was intended to do. It was intended to execute a person, to kill a person. The spiritual police thought they finally trapped Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Forgive me for that. Here's the rest of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. Jesus stops this rush to judgment by bending down, and he probably went lower than that because he was much younger. He's going to ride in the dust with his finger. I remember doing that as a child. Now, if you ever hear someone say, they know what Jesus wrote, don't believe them. The Bible doesn't tell us, and we have no idea what he wrote. Now, he might have been writing the Ten Commandments, because they were originally written by God, but on stone tablets. He might have been writing the names of the people in the crowd as he looked around, who had committed adultery. After all, Jesus was God in the flesh, and he knew who they were. It's called omniscience. Omniscience. He knows everything about everyone who has ever lived, including you and including me. Quit trying to hide it. 
God knows. We don't know what he wrote. He could have written, Pharisees are dumb. (laughs) Or he could have written, Jesus was here. (laughs) We don't know what he wrote, but we know what he said. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Surprise! These accusers hadn't thought of that response. And their trap had now been turned back on them. Again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. A second time, Jesus bends down and writes in the dust. Why did he do that? People have asked this question for over 2,000 years. And again, the Bible is silent on this. And we don't know why or what he wrote the second time. Someone tongue-in-cheek has said, maybe Jesus forgot to sign his name to the first writing. The fact is, we don't know what Jesus wrote, either the first time or the second time. At this, what he said about stoning her, basically, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. As the people in this drama walked away, what were they thinking? He got us. I don't know what were they thinking. But they were thinking about their own sin and why they couldn't throw a stone at her. Remember Jesus said, you can throw a stone. Go ahead, throw a stone. But only those of you who are without sin. And by walking away, they were acknowledging They weren't sinless. They were acknowledging that they were not without sin. And in fact, no one who has ever lived except Jesus could honestly say they were without sin. They couldn't say it to Jesus way back then, 2,000 years ago, and we can't say it to Jesus now. Paul writes this. Read it with me, please. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Small three-letter word, but so large in its magnitude of inclusivity. So back to our story. Jesus straightens up after being down there writing the second time, and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? A short time ago, this woman was a stone's throw away from death. And no doubt she can still hear the words ringing in her ears that were probably said to her by the spiritual police. Maybe words like tramp. Maybe words like whore. And then the first word she hears from Jesus is this word woman. 
Now, that might not mean much to us as we read it, but that word woman is the same Greek word that Jesus used when he spoke to his mother Mary at the wedding in the city of Canaan. It was a term of affection and a term of endearment, what was meant to show concern and loving kindness to someone. The woman says, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The only person without sin who could have picked up a stone didn't. He didn't even pick up a pebble. And here's what I want us to see this morning. In that frightening moment, Jesus didn't mention the woman's sin or her failure. Instead, Jesus, with loving kindness and concern for her, focused on her future and his belief in her. He said, I'm not going to condemn you. I forgive you. He says, go now and live a different life and turn your back on that sinful life. He said, I believe in you and I know you can change with my help. You see, one reason I like this story, because of Christ's forgiveness and belief that the woman can change reminds me of his forgiveness in my life and the way that Jesus has changed me. And maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to this story too because Jesus has forgiven you and Jesus is changing you and as all of us, we are in the process of being changed to be more like him. See, nobody knew this concept better than the Apostle Paul. When he wrote this, whoever, David Blackburn, whoever, put your name in there, is a believer in Christ, is a new creation. The old way of living has disappeared. A new way of living has come into existence. If you and I are going to deepen and improve our relationships... Instead of picking up rocks, we've got to pick up forgiveness. We've got to pick up belief in other people. That's the foundation of any healthy relationship. Forgiveness and belief. Now, I think most of us know, if not all of us, what forgiveness means. But what is meant by belief? Belief takes a relationship to a new level. It says something like, I believe in you. I believe in us. I believe we have the kind of connection that can allow us to have a strong and healthy relationship through the ups and downs of life. When you have belief in the person you're in a relationship with, it helps you keep dispensing dispensing over and over forgiveness that every relationship needs. 
You see, it's no secret that God has wired us for relationships. In your DNA, in my DNA, there's a desire for relationships. And that's why we need to be connected with people. And it's why if we only had a few days or a month to live, it wouldn't be spent marking off things on our bucket list. No, the time would be spent with people. In order to be fully alive and whole, I admit freely that I need people in my life. Even known as an introverted kind of person, I do need people. And my guess is you need people too. But what about the messy part of relationships? One of my observations of being in the ministry nearly 40 years is this. Nobody's normal. Good time to say amen. (laughs) You see, all of us are flawed in some way. Uh, We're weird. We're strange. Whatever you want to call it. We We might look normal on the inside, but as someone has said look normal on the outside. But as someone has said, we have an inner weirdo. An inner weirdo. Now, is anybody willing to admit that's true about you? Look at the honesty in this place. Wow. Now, I know you believe it's true about the person you're sitting next to. They have an inner weirdo, don't they? Yes. And maybe it's being exhibited right now. I don't know. Well, what about you? Would you admit you have an inner weirdo? Mine goes up both hands. I know I do. You can talk to my wife later. She'll tell you also. Sometimes I'm messy in relationships because of that inner weirdo. And sometimes you're messy in relationships too. So what are some practical things we can do to help with the messiness in our relationships? One thing, and I believe it's probably the most important thing, is to admit our own faults. Admit them, own them, and I'm going to challenge you today to make a simple list of them. And thinking of this message I did that. I took a three-by-five card. Here it is. And I wrote down some of my faults and some of my shortcomings. And I know some of you think, well, you should have taken a legal pad and filled it. Because we've known you for quite a few years, brother. Okay, I get it. In in my defense, I did turn it over and write some things on on the back side, too. See, I think this is important and a worthwhile exercise Because it helps us have a start to gain a realistic awareness of our faults and where we fall short. What if you and I don't realize and admit our faults and our shortcomings? If we don't, we may go through life with a warped sense of ourselves. In this unrealistic view of who we are, we can find that it becomes way too easy to criticize, 
and critique others who aren't as special as us. But when you have a true awareness of your faults, you tend to become more forgiving of other people. Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I got to do my scripture. Well, I could. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I haven't heard this word bucko or seen it in a long time. So read it with me. Hey, bucko, you're not fooling me. I see that speck in your eye. He must be a pirate. Very comical, but so true. When we make our own list of faults, hopefully... We can see to write with that plank in our eye. And that list that I wrote, and I honestly would not want to share this with you, but that list will help me, and God will help me to begin to take, take the plank out of my eye. And hopefully, this will make it easier to become more forgiving and accepting of people no matter the size of the little speck in their eye. We affirm belief in people and we forgive when we accept and understand what Jesus was trying to say about our eye problems. So we should start there. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is make a list of the significant people in your life. Who are the people you would want to spend time with if you had just that one month to live? That's the list I'm talking about. At your funeral, who do you want sitting on the front row? That's the person I'm talking about on your list. Who are the significant people in your life? What if you let those people know what they mean to you now. Many of you, if not most of you, would probably say, the people on this list already know how you feel about them. But I would argue that if you haven't told them lately, then they may not know. So tell them. What is the downside of them hearing it again from you? If they are the ones who matter most to you, let them know. So how do you let them know? Well, the Apostle John knew how when he wrote this. John writes, My children, our love should not be only words and talk. No, our love must be real. We must show our love, read it with me, by the things we do. I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard it said that talk is 
Anybody can say it. But to be known by love, we need to prove it. We should become masters of small acts of love. I read this once and it stuck with me. Meaningful relationships are built on a series of small loving actions over a long period of time. Another survey that I ran across as people to identify the small acts of love that are important to them. The number one response in the survey of over 3,000 adults was this. When someone encourages me. So, when was the last time you encouraged one of the people on the list that you're going to make? Number two was when someone calls just to see how I'm doing. That was the second most popular small act of love, reaching out through a phone call. The third was when someone listens to me. How's your listening skill? The fourth small act of love, when someone does anything that required them to think of me. And finally, number five, when someone says, I love you. That was number five, not number one. And maybe that helps bolster that claim that talk is cheap. Mastering small acts of love takes practice because they don't always come naturally to us. But if we want to be known as loving people, we've got to turn them into habits. And I say starting today. One more thing I want us to think about, and this is very important if you're going to be recognized as a loving person known by your small acts of love. Ask yourself, who do I need to clean things up with? If you had one month to live or a very short period of time to live, I believe you would want to make peace and get things right with those significant people in your life. Well, here's a tip. What if you don't wait until you get your one month to live notice before you make some things right between you and them? What if you don't wait until you're on your deathbed? What if you decided to do it today? Now, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you need to offer forgiveness. Whatever it is, and only you and God know, do what you need to do to get it right and clean some things up with the people you love. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is always easy. 
and that it won't take God's grace to make it happen. We know that. I just believe if you had a very short period of time left, you would do it. So what if you did it today? Or you did it this week? I know this may feel threatening to some of you, but it's the right thing to do. It's what the Bible teaches, and it's what God will bless if you will make the effort. And in case you haven't forgotten, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a decision that you make. The God piece in all of this is that I can love like I'm forgiving. Forgiving others doesn't make any sense unless you've been forgiven of your sins against a holy and righteous God. Once we experience God's forgiveness and we realize how undeserving we were to have him forgive us, then it helps make it easier to love others and forgive others. You've probably heard something like this, forgive and forget. Ever hear that? Forgive and forget. Now, that's not entirely biblical. What's biblical is remember and forgive. Paul writes, make allowance for each other's faults. And what's that word? Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are to remember that God has forgiven you. Not just on Communion Sunday, 24-7, 365. It's not forgive and forget, it's remember and forgive. I remember that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I remember that his death on that cross canceled the sin debt in my life that was so huge that I could never do it on my own, obviously. I remember that I'm not deserving of his forgiveness. And it's given to me purely by his wonderful grace. I don't forget any of it. And I remember all of what Jesus has done for me. If we want to be known by love, we've got to not only live like we're forgiven, but love like we're forgiven. What if we put this into practice that we're talking about this morning? Imagine what our relationships would look like if we would love like we are forgiven. Can you see how we would be different? Can you see how other people would be affected by us then? They could be themselves, messy and all. 
because they know they're going to be handed big doses of forgiveness and that we're going to show them we believe in them. We would love them even when that inner weirdo acts out. And it does act out, doesn't it? They would know that we believe in them and that we will be quick to forgive them just like Jesus did with the woman in our story. What if you and I, who are followers of Jesus Christ, did these kind of things starting today in our own circle? Then we would be characterized by love. And I believe with all my heart, our relationships would be more genuine, they would be more authentic, and they would be healthier. What I'm suggesting isn't unrealistic, isn't pie in the sky, isn't impossible. It's going to require some thought. It's going to require some time. It's going to require some effort. It's going to require some prayer. But I challenge all of us to consider, what if we walk out of here today and we begin to love people like we're forgiven, no matter how long we have left to live? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have forgiven us, those who have sought it, and come to you by faith, believing that you do forgive. And Lord, it's by your wonderful grace. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by our merit. It's not by our goodness. Because Lord, we do have an inner weirdo. Lord, we are messy at times. But Lord, you forgave that woman caught in adultery. And you said to her, Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sinful behavior behind. And Lord, when we get to heaven someday, there'll be an opportunity to speak to her. And she'll tell us how as she went on with the Lord, she did turn from that life. And she lived a productive, godly life for Jesus. Lord, I pray for these that are here today that we commit ourselves to Jesus, we receive his wonderful grace gift of forgiveness, and then we become the people that he wants us to be in our relationships, that we take the initiative to love others like he has loved us. And we thank you for it. In the precious name of our Lord, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.